Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a man whose 30-year broadcast career with one team gave him a unique peak into baseball history and of one player's career highlight that would destine him for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Nobody in the history of your club has ever done this. You need to get it right. You need to have something that's going to hold up down through the year. Welcome to Live at the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the Sandlots to the Big League Ballpark. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is longtime Houston Astros play-by-play man, Bill Brown. Thanks, Bill, for sharing about your life at the ballpark. John, it's my pleasure. We've had many chats over the years, but none on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll delve into this and see if uh, either of us can avoid being hurt. <laughs> uh, Bill, Bill Brown was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in 2004. He was inducted into the Media Wall of Honor at Minute Maid Park. You've received the Texas Sportscaster of the Year Award in 2013. And 30 years you spent as the voice of the Houston Astros. How in the world does that happen? Uh, through the grace of God is how it happens. It wasn't uh, anything that I did, really, in particular, to be any better than anybody else, to even be deserving of a, a major league job, John. You know, you've heard uh, so many minor league broadcasters who are actually better than major league broadcasters, and they never catch a break for whatever reason. So it's, it's a great business, but it's a hard business to explain to well, it's an amazing accomplishment. If, if I look down at the tenure of big league broadcasters, obviously Vin Scully is, you know, 67 years. I mean, what's that about? <laughs> and then you hear Bob Euchre, then you hear Ernie Harwell with the Tigers, and then 30 years. That's, uh, that's right up there. Well, John, you know, you have to be fortunate, I think, in terms of your partners on the air. Uh, you know, if you're doing TV, you've got a producer, a director, technical people. You're working with a range of people there and it's teamwork, but also in terms of being employed by one team. Uh, generally, there are ownership changes over that many years. There are upper management changes, and uh, it's typical to fall out of favor. And then sometimes the broadcaster himself changes. And so all, all kinds of things can happen to prevent a long tenure in baseball. Let's go back to the first. Tell me how you fell in love with baseball. I was playing baseball when I was in my teens and I was not very good. And I just was immersed in it, John. I would listen to games on the radio every night. We only had one TV game a year back then on Saturdays. And of course I'd watch that and just read every kind of book, every kind of baseball column I could get my hands on, but I could not play the game very well. So I could understand when I was 14 years old, I wanted to be a major league broadcaster because I knew there was no chance I could be a player. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, my, my story is similar. I tell people all the time that uh, the curveball made a disc jockey out of me because I <laughs> fell in love with baseball when I was about 14 years old. And my Pony League baseball coach, my Pony League coach was the owner of the local radio station. So that's how I made my oh. way into it. Interesting. And you, you really <laughs> developed your broadcasting uh, in the military, didn't you? I did. I got a break there because uh, that was at the time of the draft, and I was drafted. And um, actually, it was fairly common uh, for people who went into the military not to have been sent into their 
chosen field of expertise, but to go into supply or some other totally sure. different area. And uh, yet I was selected to go into broadcasting uh, in the military. And it actually helped my career because I had just gotten the career started after college when I was drafted. And this way I was able to come out of the Army and, and kind of have a little bit more on the resume in terms of being on the air. And, at, at, you know, in, in your 20s, that's important to have those years on the resume, as you well know, of broadcasting. When you came back from Vietnam, you didn't go immediately into sports broadcasting. What did you end up doing? <laughs> well, um, I went to Cincinnati, and I had, I had been in uh, – I was more of a newsman slash cameraman in San Antonio when I got drafted, and they wouldn't let me do sports. John. Uh, they would let me write the sportscast on the weekends for uh, Channel 4 in San Antonio, and they would have me uh, pull the slides and pull the video and do everything but go on the air. And they said, no, you look too young. We can't put you on the air. I, I said, I thought we were supposed to be shooting for a young audience. And they said, well, you just don't have any credibility. Could you grow a mustache? And I said, no. <laughs> uh, well, could you get a fake mustache? And I said, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and so it was a joke. But um, actually, so the draft solved that problem for me. I got out of there, got a fresh start, and then uh, went to Cincinnati. And they said, well, we're looking for somebody to do weekend sports and be a booth announcer three days a week. The booth announcing part didn't appeal to me very much because that's the most boring job in TV. But the weekend sports was great. And, and the management there at the station was super uh, my boss, the production manager, said, hey, look, uh, you can put your all your voice announcements on tape for the whole evening. We want you to go out to a Reds game, go to a uh, college basketball game. We want you immersed in the sports in this community. And obviously they were thinking that somewhere down the line I would be more than a weekend sports guy, and it did turn out that way. So I really uh, uh, was treated very well by them. And so you did go to Reds games. And what did you do? Take, t- take a little tape recorder with you and practice? <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, that was back in the days when we carried those little Sony recorders around, you know, with a little microphone. And um, so I would do interviews on that because we had a combined radio and TV operation, WLWT and WLW Radio, and we were doing uh, interviews for both. And there were sportscasts on both radio and TV, which we'd work. And uh, so you had to have a tape recorder back in those days. And uh, now it's an iPhone with a voice message, right? But sure um, I, I would take it... Uh, to the game with me, John, and um, after the game started, I'd go find an, an open broadcast booth, and I'd sit down with the recorder, and I would do some play-by-play for about three or four innings, and then I'd have to go back to work at the station, but um, I, I just wanted to stay in touch with that and uh, kind of develop more skills than I had, because I really hadn't done baseball on radio or TV except for a high school game or two, that was the extent of it. You know, most guys who go this route of going through minor league baseball and doing years and years and years of that, they get to the big leagues. And it's just so much easier for them mm-hmm. because they've gone through the tough part. The travel is brutal in the minor leagues. And usually it's a one-man show, at least on the road, no partners. So you're trying to do play-by-play, color, interviews, the whole thing and keep up with it, and also be a producer-engineer for yourself. So at the major league level, it's so much easier. But for me, I didn't have the background. I hadn't learned the game properly. I I was making mistakes uh, on the air, and I wanted to try to get as much of that on tape 
so I could listen to it and say, well, I've, I've worked out some kinks. That would have been a broad, bad broadcast tonight if I had been on the air live. But fortunately, it's on tape and we can erase it. <laughs> and so when did your big break happen when they said, we want you to do a Reds game? What's the story behind that? <laughs> this is <clears throat> really unusual, but in September of 72, my first year in Cincinnati, I was in the booth one day and the program director came in and said, uh, we're going to need you to go to Houston with the Reds. I said, really? What's going on? He said, well, Wade Hoyt, who was the Hall of Fame Yankee pitcher, a teammate of Babe Ruth, was in his 70s at the time. And Wade Hoyt had been a longtime radio broadcaster on the Reds. And then he had retired and they brought him back to do TV color. And he was sick and in the hospital. They needed to fill in. I was on staff. I was available. I was cheap. And uh, so I was chosen to be his uh, fill-in for, for that weekend. <laughs> in Houston, of all places. Yeah, in Houston. And, uh, wow, what a precursor. You know, who would have ever thought that I'd be working there for a good portion of my career? But we got to Houston. And um, we were not going to televise the Friday and Saturday night games. We were going to do the Sunday afternoon games. So the, uh, my boss, the uh, production manager, said, well, you'll sit uh, next to Tom Hedrick, who was the play-by-play guy, Friday night and Saturday, and just, just talk about the game the whole way and get a feel for you know, what you're going to be doing when you fill in on color Sunday, and then by Sunday you'll be ready to go. I said, okay, fine. And by that point, you know, my heart was up in my throat anyway. I couldn't even talk at that point. So we arrive uh, Friday in Houston, and we get the message that they've decided to add the Friday night game to the broadcast schedule because the Reds magic number was two and they could clinch. And so they didn't want to miss the clincher. So here we were and we're on the air doing a possible clinching game. How crazy is that? Your very first game as a major league baseball announcer. First game. And it gets, it gets even better, John, because, I am too scared to say four words. We go through eight innings. Tom, Tom's nickname was the Parrot. He never stopped talking. And so Tom did play-by-play, color, every other kind of role you would ever want. And I was just sitting there scared. And uh, so then after the eighth inning, the producer said, well, Tom, you're going to have to leave the booth now and go down on the field because if we win and we clinch, you're doing interviews with the players on the field. And so Tom leaves the booth, and I look around, and there's nobody else there. <laughs> so guess who's doing play-by-play for the ninth inning? You know, I couldn't tell you what I said, but I think it mu- I didn't get fired. So yeah. apparently it worked out all right. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you had something quite unusual happen to you in broadcasting a game. And all of a sudden, the game was stuck. We didn't know what was going on, and there was a commotion in the dugout. Coming up, Astros broadcaster Bill Brown shares about his worst day in the broadcast booth. You're listening to this podcast because you have an interest in baseball. If you own a business, what do you think people who call you have an interest in? Yeah, your business. So you need a message on hold. Now, tell your callers about your products and services, locations and hours, special offers and more with a message on hold now. We've been providing telephone on-hold messages since 1992, and we can do one for you. Get your custom message on hold now at messageonholdnow.com. Messageonholdnow.com. 
And now back to my conversation with Bill Brown, the now retired play-by-play man for the Houston Astros. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. There was a game that you were doing where something happened in the Astros dugout and you weren't even clear on what was going on. How tell us tell us the story and how did you handle it on the broadcast? It was a Sunday afternoon game in 99. Larry Durker, my good friend, was the manager. And we saw that, that, that someone was down in the dugout. And we saw that we saw some legs sticking out, but we couldn't see the rest of the player's body. Well, it wasn't mm. a player. It was a manager. It was Larry Durker. And they wouldn't get a shot of him for TV for obvious reasons. But the TV cameraman who had his camera trained on the dugout told the people in the production truck who it was, and they related to us. And, oh, my gosh, you know, the first thing that goes through your mind is, wow, this guy is my good friend. I don't know what's going on. He needs medical attention, which they're giving him. But what do I say? I don't know if his wife's at the game or watching at home. I don't want to make her crazy by saying the wrong thing. It was a, all of a sudden you're not doing a baseball game anymore. You know, it, it, it was on a much smaller scale than Al Michaels doing the earthquake in the 89 World Series, right? It's not a baseball game anymore. I'm not trained. I don't have any clue what to say. We're not going to commercial. Uh, we're just randomly, you know, trying to avoid speculating. That's the last thing we can do. And uh, just kind of waiting for things to develop. But it was horrible. It was my worst day in baseball, actually. And um, finally, the ambulance showed up. I don't know why it took so long to get there. But there was an emergency medical technician on the Astros bench. And I've been told at that time in baseball, the Astros were the only team that had an EMT on the bench. And that, I think, saved his life. How long did it take before you knew what was going on and and you were able to talk about it? Was this like Um, 20 minutes or something like that? You, you know, John, we didn't know it was a grand mall seizure until, I don't know, the next day or okay. something like that. So we didn't know. We just, and then the game was halted. Sure. It was suspended. Sure. So everybody left. You know, you talk about a weird way to go out of the ballpark. All of a sudden you're watching this game and now the game is off and you're worried about the manager's life. Man. Sure. Sure. It was, it was a very unusual day. I want to mention some players. You've had a privilege of covering a lot of, Great players over the years, a lot of great moments. First of all, do you have sort of a highlight of your career? Is there a moment in time that you were on the air and you went, this is this is, this is is it? Um, I think it would probably have to be Craig Vigio's 3,000 hit. Mm-hmm. And the reason being that, you know, I was fortunate enough to be there his entire career. Same thing for Jeff Bagwell. And so you, you feel like you're, you're very closely tied to these players. And it's a particular thrill when somebody is in a 20-year journey and, and reaches this Hall of Fame milestone. And, you know, th- that you're a part of that. That is a big honor to be a part of that. You remember when he came to spring training as a catcher? I do. And, you know, the, the funny thing, um, among others, with Craig and I, is that um, when we were getting close to 3,000, I didn't know what I was going to say when that moment arrived. And we were in Denver, and it was about two weeks before that game. And Wayne Hagen, who did Rockies at that time, was the original Rockies broadcaster, did some Cardinals later. and some Sure. When we, uh, uh, he and I were having a lunch, and Wayne said, well, what are you going to say when Biggio gets number 3,000? 
I said, I have no idea what I'm going to say, but I don't like scripted things. I just don't think that works at all. I think spontaneity is the only way to go. So it's just going to have to come out. He said, well, you might want to think about that. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, realizing that nobody in the history of your club has ever done this, realizing that this is going to automatically put him in the Hall of Fame, and just the, uh, the weight of the moment that this is going to be captured, this is going to be replayed, you need to get it right. You need to have something that's going to hold up down through the years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> was that, was that good advice? It was good and it was bad because it, it was good in the sense that I hadn't thought it through to the extent that even he had and he wasn't close to it. And then it was bad in the sense that it panicked me into uh, realizing that he was right and I needed to come up with something, but I couldn't come up with anything. Wow. <laughs> so I, I didn't dwelled on this for uh, probably a week. And I came up with absolutely nothing. And then we were in Milwaukee and we came home and it it was going to be the next night that he reached 3000, but we thought it would probably take about three more games. And because he needed three hits, but you know how it goes when somebody gets close to a big milestone like that, you know, he, he may be feeling the pressure of it or whatever. He may not be seeing pitches to hit, Sure, but it usually doesn't happen quickly. Yeah when they're on the verge of a big career milestone like that, it mm-hmm. tends to drag out. Mm-hmm. Well, this did not. And I was thinking, yeah, well, maybe Sunday. I don't know when it's going to be. We're getting home on Thursday night. But you know what? I need to have something ready, and it's got to be ready soon. And we were going, I was driving in the garage, and I remember the garage door went up, and something came to me. So I ran in the house, and I wrote it down. And I thought, I'm just going to, put this in the back of my scorebook in case it happens tomorrow night, but I don't think it will. So this was something that was, was not going to be the actual call. It was going to be tagged on later. And this was uh, something to the extent of uh, he arrived uh, from a small town in New York with Texas sized dreams. Mm. And now he's going to be going back to another small town in New York for the Hall of Fame someday. Line drive right center field. That's number 3,000. And he drives in a run. And he's going for second. Tavares with the throw. He's out. But that's 3,000 hits for Craig Vigio. It ties the ball game. He arrived 20 years ago from Smithtown, New York with Texas-sized dreams. And now as he's mobbed by his teammates, those dreams have become reality. And they'll be recognized someday in another town in New York, Cooperstown. 3,000 hits for Craig Vigio, the 27th man to reach that figure. Well, that was a wonderful moment in, a moment in Astros history. I was actually at that game, and of course, he got five hits that day. Yeah. And then, you know, they won the game in extra innings on a Carlos Lee Grand Slam. So it was just, it was one of those unbelievable nights. Let me ask you about a couple of other players. Just give me your thoughts. Jeff Backwell. I think Jeff is, is one of the most modest, uh, great hitters and great players. Um, he just, he didn't want credit for anything he did. He thought that was his job. Very much old school, old world. This is your job. You get out there and do it. 
didn't like a, a lot of um, attention, uh, but he handled it very, very well through professional. One of the more infamous trades in Astros yes. history, I believe it was for Larry Anderson, was it not? It was for Larry Anderson, and, and Jeff's grandmother was really upset because she was a huge Red Sox fan living right there in Boston, and now Jeff wasn't going to be a Red Sox player. <laughs> Tell me about watching Jose Altuve all those years. Well, I think um, that, that's that been a particular part of joy for me, and, and it still is because of the kind of person he is, because of how gracious he is, how much he does in the community. And, you know, when he first came up in 2011, uh, we had been looking at numbers on him. His stats were glittering and everything. Saw him play in the Futures game, the All-Star Futures game. We were actually flying out west. I remember we were about over the Grand Canyon and watching him play in this game. We got to watch on the on the uh, airplane. And I thought, you know, he's, he's a good little player, but I, I don't know what he's going to do up here. I have no idea what he's going to do in the big league. That's the ultimate test for anybody. And I couldn't tell you. And so he surprised and shocked me and probably a lot of other people with what he did. And then he got better. And he got better. And so in 2016, I, I was so captivated by him, I decided to write a little book about him. And I said to him, well, I'd like to sit down with you. And he said, okay. And I said, have you had a book written about you yet? And he said, no. And I thought, well, this is probably the first of many. <laughs> but um, we sat down twice. And he would never talk about himself, John. He just wouldn't do it. It's not in him. So it's kind of along the lines of, of a Jeff Bagwell. And um, I think that he is uh, right now already, of course, one of the all-time greats in Astros history. And when all is said and done, he may be at the top of the list. I know you're writing another book. You're writing a book about this past season. And uh, haven't you tentatively called it uh, the golden age of the Astros or something to that effect? Yeah, it's, it's Astros golden era is what I'm calling it right now. Yeah. I'm try, trying to finish it up, John. But uh, to address, it, it's, it is about this season, 2019, but also 17 and 18 and just this, uh, and you know, four, four playoff spots in five years now, going back to 15. So that equals what Larry Durker had done uh, during his era. And uh, with all the games they've won, you know, 107 wins this year and, and all the, the postseason success they've had. Uh, and A.J. Hinch has referred to it as, as a golden era. So I, I think that probably is not going to be shocking to a lot of people. But you try to, you know, when you're doing a book like that, you try to put it in context with uh, other periods of time in the team's history. And then what I try to do is kind of compare 17 with 18 with 19, you know, statistically – you can put those stats down on paper, but they all require a certain explanation because things are a little different with some of the weaker teams in baseball right now than they were a few years ago, John. But it's been fun to do, and then I, I wanted to put a lot of history in there. So there's a lot of uh, flashbacks to uh, players like Cesar Cedeno and Bob Watson and Larry Durker and Nolan Ryan and go on and on and on with that. Well, in the context of that, of course, after the three 100-win seasons is they followed three 100-loss seasons, and you were there for all of that. Yeah, and that's also in the book. In the same decade. Yeah, and I don't, I'm sure that's never been done before in Major League Baseball. So I, I think it is uh, a time that we need to sit back and, and uh, yeah, people are disappointed about losing Game 7 of the World Series, but just taking it all in, putting it in context, sometimes as the weeks go by after the 
season ends there and the World Series is put away, you come to a little bit more of an appreciation, and uh, it's easier to put it into context then. Thanks, Bill Brown, for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. A reminder to check in often for new episodes. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends.